Welcome to the Tenuous Links Podcast, home of the Golf Barons. Offering bloviated opinions on all things golf, discussing the game's biggest problems and some solutions to them as loosely as possible. Come add some swagger to your swing. Hello Barons and welcome back for another Tenuous Links Golf Podcast, home of the Golf Barons, with Season 2 currently playing on Fox Sports 503 and on KO and Foxtel On Demand. Now, joining Philly and me today on the podcast, we have someone who puts the special in special guest. No, it's not the Scarlet <laughs> Pimpernel, but it's our very own Dion Kiffing. Welcome back, boys. Good to have the whole band back together, gentlemen. Yes, welcome. Oh, I don't even know what to say with that, but hello and welcome. The Scarlet Pimple. I thought you were having a crack at both the skin condition and his red hair. <laughs> I was going to say it was a two-in-one whack. I'm reasonably sure I said Pimpernel. You did. <laughs> That's good, Philly. Before we get started, you have a massive smile on your face. You look quite up and about. Is there something you want to get off your chest? Uh, it's a little bit. It, it, it's not ranty. It was just the joy. So we, we talk a lot about match play and how much we love match play. Yeah, we love it. Um, and watching match play and how we don't think there's enough of it. And I, I took great delight in stumbling upon, and you had to stumble upon this to see it, the Walker Cup. Um, which has been going since 1922, I stumbled on the Walker Cup on TV to watch the best amateurs of the US versus the best amateurs of Great Bit GBNI, as they liked it, to call them, at Seminole Golf Club, which is now oh, nice. so high on my must-play list. It's ridiculous. A Donald Ross golf course, fast and furious and windy and awesome, almost with no rough. And these young players who have got... Their, their whole futures and their golfing futures in front of them. Well, minus a couple who've seemed to be scamming this whole college system because they seem a little bit on the old end. Um, <laughs> but this Walker Cup event, and then you, at the end of the coverage, you see the next two Walker Cups are played at these two crap tracks, the old course at St Andrews and Cypress <laughs> Point. <laughs> Look, how good would it be to be an awesome elite-level amateur? I must confess that I, I missed uh, I missed that it was on Phil, so that's that's pretty shameful on my behalf. But too, why the hell didn't you let us know? You know we would have been all over it. Uh, I think a crap bloke ruling. I've never been declared an Uber Baron. I'm at about two point seven at the moment, and I guess I might have just gone down <laughs> two and a half. <laughs> have you ever had anything to do with the Walker Cup, Kipper? No, I haven't. But but I've I've seen a few events, uh, obviously on on the box as well. Um, the thing about it I like is that. If you fast forward those events, you know, five or ten years, all of the players that are in them eventually make it. It's almost like sometimes when you watch junior or amateur events, you're like, gee, I hope one of these guys or girls makes the, the big time. But without a van, I think almost all of them end up on the tours. It's 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 pretty cool that the depth, once you get to that level, the depth is pretty, pretty um, heavy. They, they certainly have the option to go on tour. I mean, some of them have actually just chosen to just be career amateurs, well, but at well, least they have that what, choice. That's when you first talked about it and said, you yeah, know, no one's watching it much. Like, what what amazes me about, I think, a lot of amateurs is they've got, you know, the talent to be on the tour, but they they kind of get almost wrapped up in playing club golf and also um, not wanting to lose their status, that they do never turn professional. Um, so, And there's some absolute jets out there like that that are just phenomenal players that never, ever turn pro, that could easily have made a living out of it. But they just didn't want the life or they just didn't um, choose that path. But it's quite unique, isn't it? Uh, and, and Francis Wormet was 
you know, one of those. I mean, he he, he played so many times, but it was just professional golf was never mm. going to be his his mm. thing. Um, yet you look at the who's who. I mean, you go back to Nicholas and um, Charles Cootie and all these guys who've played Walker Cup and then gone on to uh, great things. Uh, anyway, it was just an awesome event, and I, as I say, I was I was struck by the fact that even I had to stumble upon it, whereas. You know, so the coverage here was not given anywhere near the, the credence or otherwise of, say, Ryder Cup. But I, I describe it, it's a Ryder Cup without reputations because the reputations are about to be forged. And you can watch it really independently. Like you watch the Ryder Cup and you, because the, you've seen a lot of these guys, these PJ Tour players, you look at them and you say, I don't like you or I do like you. Whereas we, there's nothing negative about any of these young kids. It's just golf at its purest form. And it was Awesome. So if you can get a replay of it or go to walkercup.org and check it out, it was unbelievable. And Seminole has – it's now in my top course. And we're not getting paid by either the Walker Cup or Seminole, are we? Sadly, no. <laughs> uh, or, or actually, it is a glowing Kipper, we can keep going. We can extend that or by anybody. <laughs> Now, Philly, you mentioned the you know the best uh, amateurs in the world altogether. We also saw the best players in the world um, tee it up at the Byron Nelson, the AT and T Byron Nelson, named after the great Texan himself, Byron Nelson. And it it got me thinking of of a bygone era of um, absolute superstar golfers. Uh, Byron Nelson, obviously, you know, five five time major championship winner. I think he only missed the Open was the only one he missed to have had a he would have had a Grand Slam, fifty two wins on the PGA Tour, which is sixth of all time. Um, and he, he played in that era that I like to call it was an era of swing and swagger Phil it's kind of what we what we love about golf you know the fedoras and the uh, Panama hats and of that Stogies. of that yeah, exactly, of that era that you know so that 30s I guess it's kind of early 30s to early 1950s even Phil probably you could probably stretch it that far who who in that era boys stood out for you as uh, just the bee's knees or, or the the guy that um, you thought brought the most swagger. Do it, Kipper. Oh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm obvious here. I just love Benny. Uh, you know, anything that Hogan ever did or, or um, touched, I tried to study and look at. So that whole era there from 1930 when he kind of hit the scene and right through to the 50s where he, you know, went berserk. I just, everything about that era was phenomenal for, for him. And I wouldn't say that he... Um, carried the sport through then solely because you had some other jets as well around your bobbies and and so on but for me he was just you know he was everything that you wanted to become and he revolutionized the sport because of the way he studied the game and studied the swing so for a uh, for a guy to kind of stand out for me that sort of owned a, a particular era or a zone of time it would have to be ben hogan and he actually made Adam Scott attempted to make pleated pants or give pleated pants a bit of a comeback, <laughs> and wore them and wore them terribly. Um, but oh, isn't it interesting? Is that there's so many? Sorry, sorry, Philip. You go. I was just going to say, isn't it interesting that when you go back to that that forties fifties um, era, is that pleated? They made pleated pants and belts and hats and plain shirts without look patterns. really cool. Yeah, look sharp as anything. 
Yeah, well, I remember um, stories I've, I've read about Hogan uh, where he would you know, iron his shirt and pants numerous times the night before, like as, as much as five to ten times, so they were absolutely crystally you know, <laughs> cut in, in all their angles with the pleats. <laughs> and then he would rock up on the tees or the, um, uh, the practice fairway, and he apparently, yet again, rumours, but uh, had this sort of mantra where he wanted to not only be the best player and obviously be able to dwarf them with his skills, but he wanted to be absolutely like a almost walk onto a tee and dwarf them with by the way he looked. And if he could outdress them literally before he teed off, he already thought he had a one up on them, which was, I thought was interesting. I, I feel like there's a uh, season three challenge in this, boys. Uh, for <laughs> well, yeah, the challenge <laughs> is sure to get me to use it. Yeah, well, the challenge is to get me to use an iron. <laughs> <laughs> But to be able to drop an iron inside, I mean, that was the other thing. Like, Hogan was working on his iron technique and he'd actually take the iron back on a slightly different plane that he'd bring it through. Yeah, rumour has it, he, actually- practiced his, he practiced it with an iron, absolutely. Just accelerate through the pleats. It was just genius. <laughs> now, Philly, who, who would, um, who'd be your swaggerish swinger of the uh, 30s, 40s, 50s? Well, I tell you, Hogan might be able to um, out-iron some people. But I can tell you my guy can out-dentist them. Um, Dr. Kerry Middlecoff. Oh, here we go. So, so he was 10th on the all-time um, winner's list. Uh, he won the 1949 US Open, 56 US Open, 1955 Masters. Um, he was a dentist until he was 26. And then he said, I'm going to have a crack at professional golf. I mean, you talk about, you know, sea changes. Um, but this idea of saying, hang on, I know I'm a good player. And he was all-American golfer and all the rest of it at college. But now I'm going to become a dentist. Actually, I've got a bit of ability not only at ripping out cavities, but about ripping out birdies, however that was meant <laughs> to come out. Playing with cavity backs, Phil. Playing with cavity backs. <laughs> well, never back then, Shooter, which is one of the other beauties of the era. Um, but these guys, and I've been watching, you know, since we discussed this is going to be the topic, I've been watching some videos of all of them, by even Guy Boros um, or um, Julius Boros, sorry, going back to that era, these guys hit the ball hard. Mm. I mean, like there's nothing, like they, they might have had this sense of caressing it, but they attacked they attacked the ball with 160, 170cc driver heads and, and our guys are charging at them with 460. Mm. Um, and the, it was and incredible. The other one that to, to enter that conversation, I reckon, so um, not probably the exact right era, but um, Mickey Wright, it was one of those, you know, swingers where she, her power, if you took that forward to today, would be, mm-hmm. I would love to see what numbers she would pull on, on Trackman or, or Flightscope. It would be phenomenal, the club head speed that, that she you would generate. So, yeah, no, it's, a, it's, it's pretty cool to look back at that era. I've often looked back at that era just to study swings because yeah. things have changed so much. In the modern era, everyone's looking at cameras, and but they never had that. Um, so it was all about feel and some different elements. And stuff that a lot of coaches throw out today is, oh, that's wrong. Um, those, those, that sort of generation really took on. So, yeah, and it was, and it was the swagger, like you say, Dames. The, 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 it was all flowing, wasn't it? There was no, you know, it was all long swings and turning swings. And yeah, I, I, I think it's a brilliant era to look at. Well, my pick of that era is the greatest swinger of all time, in my opinion, um, gentlemen, Sammy Sneed. 
Ooh. Absolutely. I mean, seven majors uh, to his name. Only missed the US Open where he finished runner-up four times for that Grand Slam. So he was so close. He, you know, won four Varden trophies. You know, so he's super consistent. He had more swagger than anyone, in my opinion. His swing is just so fluid. Like, I could watch... I could watch his swing on a loop for days. You know, like some people listen to classical music or, or solfeggio frequencies. I'll take a what? Sneed's swing, you know, that stuff you'd listen to when people meditate to relax. <laughs> I'd take... You uh, mean meditation uh, music? Yes, well, <laughs> no, but it's a type of frequency that they, I feel just to stay with me. I'd rather... You mean- I would rather watch Sneed swing on a loop for, the, for ultimate relaxation. I'll get a genuine relaxation just watching it. It's so effortless. So natural, you know, like he's—he was one of those guys whose swing—it just looked like an extension of him. It was like he was just walking. It was so. Ernie Els is probably the only other that I've seen that comes with that—that that has that effortlessness to his swing, where it's just like an extension. So, mm. Sammy Sneed, all day, every day. What a legend! What an absolute superstar. So, Kipper, of the um, of the actions that that we're talking about, and there was a little bit of variety in in them and in their method of delivery but is there a is there an absolute standout and i know you you say swing your swing um and and get it completely and and the more we venture down that track the more we understand it but is there a swing that you look at and you just go yeah that's that's the, perfect that's yeah. the bomb well i already mentioned it. i reckon mickey wright had it pretty close um high arm swing so it's not for everybody um so she she would be right up there, and then Hogan obviously was fine tuned, but he believed that he never had, you know, that great of a swing. He thought others swung better than him. I think for fluency, I agree with um, Damo here. Sneed was probably the most fluent golfer I've ever seen, um, and then you go for natural. The most natural golfer I think that ever existed had to be Bobby Jones. I mean, his swing actually, if you break it down, up until hip high either side which is obviously all that counts for the delivery position but up until then he swings pretty ordinary right but he's the most talented with his hands i think that's ever lived so it's just such a tough question because uh, there's so many different elements but um yeah for a pure swinger i, I reckon either mickey or, or hogan and mickey right we we did a, a history one of my enthralling history lessons we did um early on we, we spoke about mickey Wright, and we spoke about babe zaharis and, and some of these freak athletes who were just Unbelievable, um, and again, as you say, you put them in the modern era with their with their their hand eye and their general athleticism, and there'll be some that'll echo it. But um, you know, it's no different. Imagine, and if we could do it, and we can't, but you put modern equipment into Hogan's hands, or into Sneed's hands, or into Saracen's hands, and that's the the argument again about Nicholas versus Tiger about goat is if you equip them the best. Um, what happens and we'll never know and and it's not a bad thing that we'll never know no and i think also too it's like if you look at other sports that aren't um that are time measured you only have to look at you know mark spitz and all his gold medals and he doesn't even rate as a a contender in (laughs) in getting qualified to to compete in the olympics these days so you know the things develop you know we, we get better with um all of our i guess training and whatnot so it's you can never compare errors really just on a quick one too, I've got, I had to add, when you mentioned Byron Nelson's tournament, as a side note, the second greatest event on the planet, oh, by the way. Here we go. Come what? On, go, go on. on. Go on. Uh, 
that that week I just it was I got shivers down my spine as soon as you spoke about it actually because they <laughs> he's oh there's just that many things at that tournament um they got a big tent as well a marquee area where people would just lose their filter on a, on a <laughs> nightly daily basis um there's a hotel down the road that we all used to go to that ended up putting marquees all through the street uh that, that you'd end up lobbing in after the after your round as a caddy you just wanted to get off course as quick as possible um you couldn't you <laughs> so as it, as always uh Kibber, it comes back to you and drinking oh, uh, yeah and the uh, the <laughs> wonderful times that ensued it, it was my second favorite event on the planet that week actually another story from that week just a real quick one on <laughs> me and bad's lob first ever event there and uh we we bundled downstairs at Thanks. this um amazing hotel that we'd, we'd got or got put up i don't know we were so young i'm not sure how it was getting handled but i couldn't afford to stay there as a caddy but when i was with bad's first year around we stayed at this wonderful hotel there we barrel downstairs all you can eat buffet and i meet my mate who from um, victoria ryan meadows a throw out to ryan um anyway i'm like hey, what? fair player too by the way he was he was, a, he was a really good player and his brother right um anyway Brad, yeah. so i said to ryan what are you doing he's like oh i know this guy blah 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 blah, blah. he owns this hotel I'm like, yeah, right. He goes, I'll, I'll, I'll call him. So he calls this person who I have no idea who it is. The guy comes out of this, you know, little entrance door at the um, the hotel. It turns out he owns the hotel, and not only does he own the hotel, he owns oil rigs all through Texas. Right? He's a, he's a, he's a billionaire. Okay. So we obviously befriend him. It's all happening, and then that week he takes us on unbelievable trips. We had boxes at the um, at the, the baseball. We, you name it, he took us on it. And all he wanted to do, this guy, was just be a good golfer. And <laughs> and, and, and it was so funny because he, 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 like he'd done everything in his life. He owned everything, but he just wanted to hit a golf ball. So to him, Aaron was the bee's knees. And, uh, yeah, geez, we had a good week. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm tipping you got reasonably blind. And speaking of blind... <laughs> I want to move on to the Blind Golf Challenge uh, oh. that you did with Philly in Season 2 of, Fo- of, of Foxtel, Season 2 of Golf Barons, which is currently playing on Foxtel, as we mentioned. So, D. Still having counselling, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's, talk, let's talk through it. What was the most challenging part of being blindfolded to play a par four, Phil? Mm. A, a, a short par four. A short well, par four. Well, let's, let's, for the listeners out there, let's preface this as well. Um, and why I need to do this is because I've hit balls with a blindfold on or closed eyes all my life. And we did another segment on that in season one, uh, days where we had a blindfold on and, and uh, you know, you pull the blindfold down, I guess is what I'm saying to, to the listeners, and then you hit a ball. And never... That was without, that was without funding from tourism, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, you did, so but I've never had a problem with that. You hit the ball well as well. Doing that, you kind of you've got your stance is what, is what I'm getting at. You look down at the ball, you pull the blindfold down, and you hit it. And you've got that reference point, yeah. Yeah, I'd, and I've trained like that in the past. You know, closed eyes just so you can feel the body move a little bit more, and you can concentrate on your movements a bit. But this blindfold challenge was completely different for me because I was blindfolded and then sort of walked onto a tee and therefore I couldn't see the rest of the hole the entire way. And nor could I have a reference point toward, I guess, towards where your target was or the ball was or anything. I just had Phil walking me over and, and putting me in what he said was the right position. And where I, what was so confronting is I, I just felt completely and utterly lost, extremely vulnerable and oh, so unsure. It was, I, I can't explain it. It was... 
something that I'd, I, don't, I didn't expect coming into the segment at all. I just thought, oh, you know, this will be fine. I'll just hit a ball with a blindfold on. But, mate, I missed the ball numerous times. I found it hard to, to even literally get anything on the, <laughs> on the contact. Um, I think I only hit one shot that found the face after the entire nine. Uh, sorry, the entire hole. It was just brutal. And then at the very end of the hole, it was only one hole, as Phil pointed out, a short hole in that, par four. To get the blindfold off and then to look up and around and, and see everything again and, and, and be back in a, an environment that I was very familiar with being obviously a golf hole, it was, I don't know, I, I can't explain it. Um, I recommend any, anyone to do it just for, for one hole because it was so confronting to me. Uh, yeah. You made a comment early on that as soon as we removed a sense that you felt your other senses heightened, but particularly under your feet, you, you made a comment that you could feel more under your feet. What? Yeah, like I started to feel, I guess, the undulation a lot more, um, which is interesting because, you know, a lot of the green reading from aim point and stuff, you know, goes into reading the angle in your, well, you're obviously standing on the green, so the angle and how you feel the angle in your feet and stuff. But when I was on the, uh, I guess, the side of the rough and everything, I could you could almost feel the, the blades of grass and what sort of grass they were. Because you asked me a few questions about that, Phil. You're like, oh, what, what's the rough look like or feel like? Um, obviously, I couldn't see it, so I had to make an assumption on that. But I kind of got it half right because I could sort of feel it through my shoes. Um, but, geez, I, I just coming back to the, to the word confronting, I cannot explain it. I just felt so out to sea. Um, and losing a sense was... Oh, it was brutal. Absolutely. And so much admiration for blind golfers because... They not only can hit a ball, <laughs> unlike me, who can't, can't, could not hit it at all, but they don't have that, um, you know, ability to, to, you know, look around or, or feel their environment at any point. So, oh, mate, it was, it was unreal. Kip, I remember back when we did the, I think it was the Mizuno, the ES21 mm. wedge review, and you would say that, oh, I could feel that off a certain groove. You reckoned mm. you could pick which groove it was off. Yep. So what was fascinating in, in the blindfold challenge is when you, you hit one, um, or you sort of hit one, <laughs> with a driver, uh, and Phil asked you, you know, where'd that hit? Where'd you feel that on the face? And you said you felt it on the yeah. toe, but you actually hit the it heel, off which, the heel. When he told me that, I thought, like everything in the start of that segment, I honestly thought it was a sit-up. So I thought anything... I didn't even know if the ball was there the first couple of times. I thought he could be moving this out of the way. I had no idea. That's that's how... No, we'd never move a ball. Oh, no, no. That's how foreign I, it, it was. But when he said I hit off the, toe, uh, hit off the heel and, and I felt like I'd hit off the toe, I'm like, oh, I just washed it off. I'm like, oh, who knows what he's <laughs> what's happening here. But the more it went on, the more... I didn't have any type of feel like even a shank not shank one sorry i towed one purely off the toe of my um my wedge i don't know what all that was or what um, shot that was but when i hit it i i didn't even know where i'd hit it or if i'd kind of hit it i i, I thought i made i felt something but yeah so it threw my feel off as well <laughs> well it was in your it was in your top 35 shots but <laughs> but the other thing shooter observing both so being able to observe both and one my outstanding caddying skill <laughs> <laughs> and what I will tell you is that if anyone does need a caddy, I am available because... It's really not that hard, <laughs> is it, Phil? I am. I, I was in awe of myself. My right today. shoulder got bruises because he, he, he just kept <laughs> smacking it. So I go, you're not doing it properly. <laughs> also, also, Philly, kudos, kudos for your cameraman skills. Very good. Well, we'll, we'll see. But the idea, th this other thing about feel um, with vision, vision, and there's two elements to it. One is the aim point, which... 
I'd like to talk a little bit more about. But, but Shooter, when you were hitting the wedges, you declared that you wouldn't have a clue where you were hitting it out. No. Yet no. off a cricket bat, you declared mm. that you would know if one came out of the – like still went through covers, but whether it came slightly off the inside or the outside. Yeah. But on a golf club, you don't really have any sense of that. Whereas um, when you had the vision – and Kip was saying, you know, when we're hitting those wedges um, – that it was high toe or low toe or, or, or otherwise was actually bang on to where it was coming off. So the fact that he actually that I suppose one the question is does sight enhance mm. sense or, or that sense of contact. So how much am I feeling the contact and how much am I seeing it in that split second? Um, which I'll leave as an open question. Then the other one from an aim point point of view, Kipper, is given the fact that your senses went through the roof with your feet, and aim point is all about feeling the ground. I've seen, you know, when Sergio won, he closed his eyes to putt with. But that was about making sure he never saw the ball just in case it missed. Um, <laughs> how much could it help with your green reading if now that you know that, if you actually shut your eyes? Well, well answer the first question. What was it again? <laughs> um, was about feel. So no, the first no, no. question was about I, I, the fact that Shooter has no sense of where he strikes the ball in the club face. No, I'm senseless. No, I, I, but you have an absolute sense. But we're wondering now that, since that, that misread of heel to toe with blindfold on, whether, and Malcolm Gladwell again referred to this um, in his book, whether or not there's a point where your focus is so tight when you're hitting balls that you're actually seeing where it strikes as much as you are feeling where it strikes. Was that blink, Phil? It was in blink, yeah. So, so yeah, in answer to that, I think definitely um, there's two, two, two elements to this. The, the first when you've got your, your eyes and you hit something and then you, you kind of, for me anyway, know where it, where it struck. We used to do face training where you, you, you know, hit hundreds of golf balls um, with face tape on and you just had to look at it every time and, and understand where it, where it actually struck and what that felt like. So you could diagnose if you were heel striking or toe striking or center striking. So that's, that was a learnt skill in a lot of ways. But you kind of got used to listening to, to it as well. Um, so, so you, you could hear a heel, you could hear a toe, you could hear a low, you could hear a high. So, so you got used to the, 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 the feel of it, maybe to your point, the look of it and, and, and to the, the sound of it. So there was sort of three things helping you. When my sight was taken, taken away and walked into the shot, I guess I was so worried about just hitting, making contact that I definitely wasn't listening to, or, you know, heightened listening to what it sounded like. And I definitely wasn't kind of buying into, gee, I've hit that out of the toe of the heel straight away. I was just thinking, I hope to Christ I hit it. <laughs> so I think I think all the, all the senses come into play, I reckon, when, when you become good at knowing where you've hit the ball. Um, and as to the second question, which was basically, you know, does it help with, or could it help with green reading, just not having your eyes open? Um, to an extent, but I think yet again, it, it, it's beneficial if you could use your eyes again because you you're, you're feeling something and then you're seeing the slope of what that feels like if that makes sense so you're getting a, a feedback tool on that's what a couple of degrees feels like that look is what a couple of degrees if you don't know that that's what a couple of degrees looks like then if you did only eyes shut putting then you might probably get to a pretty good place but yeah i think it's, it's just giving you more data points Absol- isn't it? absolutely it's yeah it's a really good way of putting it yep more more data points well, that makes me want to pose the question, boys. If you had to lose one of your senses, which one 
which one would it be well, it wouldn't, for, for playing golf? It wouldn't be Sight. Not that you would like it. <laughs> it wouldn't be yeah. It wouldn't be Sight. Sight's the first one <laughs> because, that I ever get anyone to Because I, I realised that I couldn't play golf anymore. I'd just be walking around with Phil yelling at me. <laughs> um, so, so what would it be? Because you have we've touched on, you know, the, the sound... The sound and feel elements are obviously tied together, which we've spoken about in the past and, and in several reviews that we've done. And if you have no feel, well, you can't feel anything. You can't swing a club. You can't do anything. So that's got to be out. I'd lose taste. But then you can't taste the victory. <laughs> well, that's about the only thing I reckon that wouldn't hurt my golf game. But... Philly? Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm similar to Kipper. I think I'd probably go smell. But... Um... <laughs> I think we needed to narrow this down a little bit. But the the idea of losing your – if you lose your hearing – What's that? Even though the, everything feels differently and you can't heal, you can't hear people calling for and, – and, but even though everything feels differently, you can still perform because the feel doesn't come in until after you've hit it. You don't feel it coming down. I wonder you if he, hearing no fill it would affect balance. Oh, nice, Dees. Bit of vertigo. Mm. Yeah, yeah wonder, you wonder all you want. <laughs> but until you can back it up with some facts, I'm telling you this, Jack. Mate, this, this show and our show never is about facts. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but I think if it was, um, you know, is it touch? I mean, if you think about the sense of, of touch and you feel like that would be, that'd be devastating. But I think vision, vision is the biggest challenge. And I remember many years ago being able to have a conversation with David Blythe and Gary McInnes. So, so David Blythe really founded, I think, or got blind golf in Australia going um, and therefore is a legendary blind golfer who lost his sight, I think, at, at 14 or 15, um, but but then embraced the game of golf and loved the game of golf. And the thing that I learned about it is the amount of trust. Uh, when we watched it back the first time, I described it to you, Kipper, as uncomfortably entertaining because I was actually watching how uncomfortable you were having been elite <laughs> at a game and becoming and becoming the worst player I've ever seen in my life, including my kids the first time they played. But secondly, the amount of pressure that falls on the shoulder, and this is a genuine comment, not that it fell on my shoulders, but the amount of pressure that falls on the shoulders of, in blind golf's instance, uh, the caddy um, or, or, the, or the support people, um, is also extraordinary because I unfairly might have suggested to you that there were, we were walking through a forest at one stage. Um, but the minute you lose a little bit of trust, you've lost all of it. So, so you know, once you take the piss once, and there was that other time where we left in the middle of the fairway and ran away, ran away but the minute you lose a little bit of trust, it's all gone and you actually can't... I wonder whether you repair that. So it's amazing the people who caddy have to be great people as well as the people who play, particularly in the blind golf instance. And I think also the trust element comes back to it from a personal thing as well, just golf in general. If you lose trust in your putting, your chipping, your bunker play, you just your general swing, it, it deteriorates so fast as well, doesn't it? So it's, it, it's a trust element across the board and golf highlights it as well. But if you lose trust in someone showing you, you know, where you need to go and, 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 and that, that, that element of sight's gone, jeez, you, got, you will have nothing. Did Alan B ever lose trust in your... Uh, <laughs> the first reading? hole, first tee, every week. <laughs> Fair to say, DZ, that in that challenge you completely lost the plot uh, and speaking of losing the plot, Phil, I, I want to talk about 
a little bit about players who have lost their way, uh, former great players or people who have been really successful on, on tour who then lost their way and how do they regain themselves, I guess, after losing it. And we've seen quite a few sort of resurrections on tour this year already. We've seen Jordan Spieth, as I, I predicted, come back. Rory, Phil... That prediction of mine only a month ago that he'd be back. Uh, Lydia Ko. <laughs> Hang on. I'm going to interject here. We, we yeah. need a list. Philip, you're the best at this, right? We need a list of of actual things he says versus yeah. what comes true. Because I don't know what average we're running at, but it certainly well, isn't Kip, high. Kipper, you'd, 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 have a, you'd have an idea of that list if you listen to any of the podcasts we've done. Yes, touche. Well, Kipper, Kip, I do have a list, and I've got a I've got a lots of Rory's... Uh, Crap bloke, Rory's crap, Rory's gone, Rory's this, Rory's that. Rory's back, I told you he'd be back. <laughs> I tell you, one thing we do have in common, though, Shooter and I, Kipper, is that we both declared that Jordan Spieth had too much talent to be gone forever. Yeah. And I think one of the three of us might have suggested that he was he was gone, that was not Shooter or me. I, I honestly thought the boy was in real trouble. Um, I, I, no, you fr- said gone. I, I first of a minute. You I, said gone. I, yeah. I don't think I said gone. Did I say gone? You said, you said G-A-W-N, gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I probably um, did. So, sorry, Phil. I do I'm want so to just. Happy um, back, though. Oh, how good is it, Phil? After the after the Masters, we had our whole predictions around um, with Rory, and you said how how he's let you let you down because you tipped him to win. You go back and check that. Did I or did I not say that Rory is too good that he will be back? You definitely did say that. Thank you. You. you I'm just. I think we forgot to press record at that point in time. But you definitely. <laughs> no, it's on there. Three weeks later, he wins. I'm just saying, boys. Just, just stick with me. But we've um, had Spieth. We've had Lydia Ko. So, so R- Rory again. The revolution. Martin Keimer. You look at other sports. You got Andre Agassi. But well, Martin Keimer's one because again, he's someone who's he's shown some signs of returning to the winner's circle. He's a, he's a remarkable one. He was a former world number one. Mm. Um, he he hasn't tasted success though since winning his the you know that when was it 20, 2014 at Pinehurst US Open the wire to wire absolute demolition he won by eight shots and it was one of the most clinical displays of golf I've ever seen yeah. he hasn't won since then That's, and what's, he's, he's been knocking on the door recently getting back to the question for me is what is it one that causes these uber talented um, players to lose the plot in the first place. And what is it that helps them get back? Is it a is it a mental thing? Is it more of a technical thing, or is it a combination of both, or is it something completely different altogether? What? Look, I, I don't think there's an answer to that because if you knew it, you'd make a million dollars because you'd go and tap Finchie on the shoulder and, you, and you'd get him back playing. But but I I think it's a combination of um, it's, they're playing at such a high level. It's like a kind of an F1 race car. The difference between you know, your your Mercedes versus you know, your, your Toro Rosso is, isn't that much, but it ends up being a lot, right? And I think that's also with the golfers is if you're the best player or the best players in the world, everything's got to be right. You've got to be great at putting and chipping and, and hitting and, and mental and, all, and preparation physical. And if anything drops off, you're done. And look at Kepka. I mean, he was flying and just a little injury here and there and you know everything kind of drops off um so you're saying kepka's gone no 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 wow that's a massive call no no what i'm getting at is like you know just one thing left him he didn't change his swing he didn't change anything he's just his body and all of a sudden not in contention um or it might be now but 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 that's all that needs to happen in golf for you not to be right up there and then the trouble ensues where you start to look at why you're not as good as you you were and then you can really unravel um 
and, and it start to change stuff and change coaches and change physios and caddies and, and your general approach to everything and, and then it snowballs so look I just think it's because they're so finely tuned that they just have to be totally right in every area and as soon as one's off they're done now I might, I might have banged on about this a little bit and I'm going to feature Rory because Damo's jumped back on with Rory no no I said he'll win I didn't say I like him uh, yes. Yeah. No, you said you loved him. But there's an element of this, and I know I've spoken about it many times before, that comes down to strategy. And Rory, you know, comes out and declares that I chased Bryson, I chased Bryson, I chased Bryson, and then goes away and takes three weeks off and had a, a coach change, but comes back and, and has declared that I just want to hit cuts with driver. I just want to hit fades with driver, which is what DJ did. Now, Didn't I'm Tiger not saying- Didn't do that as well? What's that? Mm. Didn't Tiger try and do that for a period as well? Yeah. Well, I think Tiger just does whatever he wants. Um, But the reality is is that Rory's Rory's issue then was, yes, it might have been partly swing and, yes, it might have been partly psychological, but a big chunk of it was in the planning of the 4,000 people he's got around him who all just kept patting him on the back, telling him how awesome he was, as opposed to one of them saying, do you think we actually look at our strategy rather than theirs to say what, what works and why? And so the fact that he's come back... One, he's gone back to older irons. But secondly, he's come back saying, I'm going to hit fades off the tee because it's about control. Finally, he's in charge of his strategy again, as opposed to trying to pursue someone else's is strategy. That a, is that a maturity thing, do you think, Phil? Um, I'm hoping that one of his crew have finally woken up or said to him, have you thought about doing something that's good for us, not something that's good for them and trying to apply it to us? Do I think it's a maturity thing? No, I don't, because if it was a maturity thing, I mean, you don't cut, suddenly become mature in the space mm. of three weeks. I think I think it's in a mindset, though. It, it's a coach thing. I, I, I actually put a lot down to the fact that I reckon he has changed an advisor on his inner sanctum who said to him, what are you doing? And finally he listened. And, and it's not the first 15 who tell you that you're doing the wrong thing. It's often that you ignore. It's the one that you finally listen to that makes the big change. Now, I'm not saying Rory gets back to number one in the world. But, but also, too, like I think he's, it's not the first time he's made maybe a, a team mistake here because like, remember when he changed equipment and he changed everything, right? Balls and hats and shoes and gloves and the whole lot. There was always a rule on tour, even when I was out there, um, that changed one element make that then fit into your let's call it set so if you're looking at ball change a ball right okay get out there test that ball's needs this that ball needs that, that okay now we've got a ball that works with my equipment with my swing okay now let's change driver um okay that driver does this, this okay that driver now works with my ball with my swing like you can't change everything at once and that's what he did and he it was a train wreck so much so that he you know he lost the plot there, didn't he, for a while? He started walking off rounds and, you know, it was really... Throwing clubs into the water. Snapping them over his absolutely leg. Had a or re- actually pre-snapping them. Had a lot of uh, big tantrums because he was one of the greatest players in the world and then all of a sudden was uh, well and truly mediocre and he couldn't handle it. So it's not the first time we've seen him make a maybe a team error because someone's not managing that properly, whether it's him going, I want to change everything, or whether it's someone around him going, guess what, we can get $4 billion for you switching everything at once. I think it's the latter. Yeah, and then that, that can be the, the distance issue he's, that he's flagged with, um, with Chase and DeChambeau is that maybe there was a team sort of meeting where he's like, well, now I'm not the longest driver on tour. Let's, let's make that happen again. I, I don't know. I don't know. We're not in that circle, but you would think that there is a bit of a team issue possibly. But if their whole life they're surrounded by people who just tell them how yeah. good they are. Yeah. 
it's a really difficult thing to bring it into question. And I remember, and this is again, sorry, I'm going to have to speak about basketball, but there was a, a <laughs> shooting coach. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry, but there was a shooting coach uh, that I went to a seminar with um, from an NBA shooting coach, and was talking about <laughs> one, of, one of the elite players. No, but I paid to go and do this. He didn't pay to come and teach me. But um, one of the elite players who was atrocious free throw shooter. And so actually afterwards I asked him because I'm a bit of a big deal and I just <laughs> sorted straight up to him and said, hi, I'm a bit of a big deal. Uh, I know Kipper. And I said to him, Such an idiot. Um, how is it possible that an athlete at this standard, and I won't say the guy's name, but an athlete at this standard can have made it all the way to the NBA but be less than 50% from the free throw line? And he said because he was such an elite athlete that no one at any point in his college life or high school life had the courage to say, you know you can't shoot, and unless you fix it, you're never going to be as good. Was this guy Shaquille O'Neal? <laughs> no, it wasn't even Shaquille O'Neal. No, no, he, he was a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a superstar um, and, and was playing for the Orlando Magic, but, but it was he had a terrible free throw record. And so what they did, he was able to actually rip it apart and take him back, and if you thought about it from a putting point of view, Rather than starting at six foot putts, he started at one foot putts to get the technique right. And then rather than going from one foot to two foot, his description was, we then we didn't move back a foot or a step, we moved back an inch or two inches or three inches because someone finally had the courage to rebuild it and actually got him shooting really well. And I think he's, he's now at about 71 or 72%, um, which makes him, but, but because someone had the courage to say, you know, that's not the right approach why don't you look at this? And I think that's maybe what's happened. Kipper, to your point, he's had a lot of bad advice and finally got some good advice. To your point there, Phil, um, and closer to home, you see that uh, in, in AFL. Have a look at how many how many elite footballers now can't kick on their non-preferred um, foot, especially left-footers, who have just never been told to kick on their right. And, and from a technical perspective, some some of these things just should not have got past under 12. So, so you, you were, uh, the uh, listeners might know this, so I'll flag it. Dames was a gun, oh, absolute gun. gun footballer. Superstar. True story. Should have played for Hawthorne. Anyway. Hawthorne. Um, but, oh, Dames, wish. in your training back in the day, because I, 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 this fascinates me, do they not teach you to basically be ambidextrous all the time or, or not? So in, in my era, yes, we were. We, we were taught pretty early on that we needed to be able to kick um, on both sides of the feet. What, feet, to a what point about where, handball? To a point with, um, yeah, and handballing as well. That, that, that comes out pretty – in fact, you're right. That's actually become a bit of an issue at the, at the elite level now. But just to put it, in, um, put it in perspective, I look at some of the best footballers that have played uh, have been not necessarily quick – players at all so you look at the diesel williams you look at the um sam mitchells not quick players but always had time mm. scott pendle always yeah. have time why because they can use both sides of their body at any time that they need to steal side bottom so so there's still a few of them that, that are left in but i played i played for a year on my non-dominant side as a left footer because i had osteitis pubis and people thought i was a left footer yeah right. and and, and oh, the thing is now when so you look good. at Thank you, Phil. Now I had to get that in. So now, when you look at, um, but now when I look, even things like even guys who are superstars of the game. So look at a look at a Lance Franklin. His kicking technique is, you know, for, for goal is terrible, and it works from outside fifty because you get that extra distance. And he was never corrected early on to a point where if you tried to correct him, you you'd actually take out the thing that makes him mm. such a superstar. But how many times, especially now that he can't, he hasn't got the the pace. 
How often does he get caught now wrong-sided because he can't kick on his right foot and never does? It's, it's an interesting one. We're off topic because we're on the footy. But watching Pendlebury is an interesting one because I reckon at times he's so comfortable with both sides of his of his body use that he, he does almost a pirouette on the spot because he's got options in a 360 area versus one side, that 180 sort of look that most players do. What, right, who's, on my, who's on my left because I'm a right footer? He doesn't have that and, and, and therefore you know, opens every part of the, of the ground up. And to Phil's point again, that's, um, he was a basketballer growing up. Mm. So having that complete, that basketball 360 thing that Phil's talking about, that's so important in sports. Can that be applied to golf as well, do you think? Yeah, well, I think it almost needs to because, you know, I guess not not so much swinging um, left hand and right hand, but but the the, um, the feel element and the awareness element of that and the training of it absolutely can. Yeah, for sure. Well, just thinking about that that two sided um, idea, Patrick Mahomes threw a, t- a first down pass left handed. I mean, he's a right handed thrower, but but all, sudden, but, but all of a sudden, but but all of a sudden, you go both sides and and. You're right, but it's just that that idea of of uh, say finding a, a goal, finding a skill, and, and having the courage to be told that you can do better, um, but have it all make sense and work. But Kipper, what about for an amateur? What about so? I'll use an example. So I know a bloke called me who <laughs> played five rounds in a row and hit the majority of them. Um, well, I'm going to say relatively central. Like I, I I didn't hit many poor shots that didn't go where I wanted. Um, just can't putt. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you start getting a couple of Healy. And in fact, I played a golf day where um, I was flying and then my second shot into into 18 may or may not have been somewhere closer to the heel than it should have, resulting in a side spin that I blamed the ball. But from the, but from that point on, I, so the back nine, I was second-guessing every swing. Like it only took one shot to second guess every swing. What's the quickest solution for a, an amateur? And because everyone listening is amateurs, all seven of them. So, so what's the best solution if you actually find that you hit one bad shot? That's a bloody great question. This comes up daily when I'm coaching. Is that process produces result? And that's all I ever say to my guys and girls is that, is that I want you thinking process produces result on every single shot that you hit. So buy into the process and not the result. And the problem with this, with golf, is it's so emotive where the ball goes. You, you can't help feeling good, bad or indifferent when the ball takes off. And the only difference between an elite player, and honestly is, is that they get to a point in their practice where they do not buy into the result of the ball flight, they buy into the process and their their movement in anything, putting, chipping, bunker play, whatever it might be. So if you can get to a level where you're practicing, let's put it, not the, not the round of golf, but where you can buy into the process, you're on the driving range, you hit a shit shot to the right or left, and you don't watch, or no, you can watch the ball flight, sorry. You, you see where it goes, but you then come back to doing what you know, that fixes it. So I've watched so many players in pro-ams, and this is a, a kicker for me. When they hit good shots, they'd never ask the pro or me as a caddy or anybody around them what they did right, ever. I've not, not once have a guy or a girl smash one down the middle and goes, what did I do right there? No one. But the minute, they can play nine holes magnificently, and the minute they hit a crap shot, what did I do wrong? 
and, and it, it, it's like a big red flag to me because they're buying in to one error, right? The ball's an inch wide and the face is two inches wide and they've <laughs> bought into why didn't that go perfect all of a sudden when I've hit nine holes? Well, it, it, it's it's just about, right, go and do what you know. And that's what a great player does. They hit a bad shot, they walk off to the side of the green, they rehearse what they know, not necessarily what they think they did wrong, but what they know. And therefore the process produces a result. So that's what I'd be doing, Philip. So you're, so you're saying in essence, you need to trust your swing that you've trained. Yeah. Now, bringing that back to the, your blind golf experience, were you at any point not trusting your swing after, when you were... After the, after the second air swing, <laughs> which was on the first two shots, right? So the first shot I air swinged, and I deep down didn't know whether Phil had moved the ball or not, honestly. Mm-hmm. Right? I really didn't. And because he started laughing, I thought, yeah, he stitched me here. But when I looked at the replay and I missed the ball by about three inches, <laughs> I, I realised that, uh, no, no, just me. And then the second one, when I did the air swing... I then thought, well, he still could have removed the ball, but maybe this is me. And then when he came in and said, this isn't funny anymore, can you please... I'm like, no, he's starting to get annoyed at me. (laughs) So I realised the... (laughs) Very, very cranky man. Like a good caddy does. Yeah, I realised the ball was actually there and it was me. And when I realised it was me producing the error, I absolutely started second-guessing myself. And then I I think I even said on camera, right, hold, hold your angles, as in make sure I stayed not swaying around and moving and you know, try to produce a pretty circular motion to get back to the same spot because I was dead set nervous that this wasn't going to get any better and it didn't really. <laughs> so kept, the bad shot... Missing, sorry, Phil, I was going to say, you kept missing it swinging inside the line, mm, didn't you, yep. quite a few times. Yep. Is that because one of the things that you train a lot is shallowing your plane to a point where you're almost exaggerating it? Do you think that is possibly the potentially the reason why? Well, I, I, don't, I don't... To be answered the question, I don't know. And I have done a few since because it bothered me so much, right? Where I was just at the studio and I've, I've done the ones where I walk up to the ball and, and address it, then shut my eyes and hit it, and no problem. But then I... But then I You've really messed with but it. Then I, this is yeah. brilliant. Yeah, it is. And then I'm thinking, so why is this different? And, and I think the only reason that it's different is when I shut my eyes, I've got the projectile kind of in my mind's eye, the little ball in my mind's eye, of that's where I need to come back to and then hit. Right, so it's like I, I've got that, as, a, as you pointed out, Phil, that sense of awareness of, oh, there's what I'm trying to hit, right? So um, I'm going to, in the next week or two, get one of my uh, other coaches to waltz me on over with a blindfold on, put me next to the ball, but then really imagine the ball there, right, and hit it and see if that makes a difference. Because I guess that's all I wasn't doing was I, I could see the ball normally and I'd hit it, but this one I couldn't see the ball, so I was just swinging without a focus point maybe that was the difference I don't know can we get that recorded yeah <laughs> I, I, I might actually send it to you I'll send it to Phil because it's still bothering me how did I go um, when we replicated the same challenge Kipper when you put the blindfold on me and walked me up with my blade my Daiwa DG273 blade well, this was the incredible things uh, Dames is that Thank I, you. I was so sh- oh, I haven't had I this. was so shattered right as it it just obviously was confronting to me like I don't know what was going on all my spatial awareness was gone so I said to Philip after the segment I'm like can you do one for me and see if what happens to you so I put the blindfold on he was nowhere near the ball I walked him over two meters I put the ball in the middle of his club face he set up the way he normally did uh, does and I, I said all right swing just laced this thing. <laughs> no, no way. I want, I want video my, evidence of this. It's true. My little heart sunk. I'm like, what is it? I'm, Even Phil hits yeah. it better than me. I'm like, what is wrong with me? So, um, yeah, no, I, maybe it's just me. 
But but I think, Kipper, in this, though, this is the most exciting thing, I think, for your coaching, and I mean this quite sincerely, is that it's been a long time since you've had empathy with... <laughs> With the people that you coach. I mean this quite sincerely. No, 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 you're totally wrong. I have empathy on a daily basis. When, no, when you don't. No, no, you have mockery. No, what, what you I, have what, mockery because you're them and we're us. No, no, no. Look down nosedly. No, I have absolutely have empathy for, for them trying to learn and be better. 100% I do. But what I... I the peasants. No, no, no. no but what I, I think they call it sympathy on a regular basis is a, a, a sense of being in their shoes. That I don't have because I've done 20, 30 years of hitting the ball. So I've built up to a skill level that's okay most times, right? So I don't know what it's like to miss a ball, um, be you know totally embarrassed, all that sort of stuff. And I did know on that day. I, I knew uncategorically what it was like, again, to be a beginner. And gee whiz, it's confronting. Yeah, complete embarrassment. And just on the last point there, Shruta, one of my favourite things of all that, even after I flushed it, he was so pissed off, <laughs> so genuinely pissed off that he threw a ball down and repeated his normal blindfold drill. He threw the ball down, put the blindfold on and hit one and it was almost like a fist pump of, yeah, I knew I could do it. Well, because I, I could do it. That's what was so bad about it. It was like as soon as I addressed the ball but then pulled the blindfold down and smashed it, perfect. I'm like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> was, there any, was there genuinely any concern of stepping on any of the brown snakes um, or tigers that were there? <laughs> No, I was just concerned that Philip was, it was a whole stitch. The whole thing was a stitch up. So I didn't know whether I was going to be walked into a tree or what I was going to do. But no, he looked after me somewhat um, mm-hmm. to the point where he genuinely was concerned that I'd lost any any uh, skill level at all by the end of the, <laughs> end of the segment. <laughs> and it was, and it really was one of the best and both experiences, learning experiences and, and being able to discover things about life as a caddy, life being trusted, and I mean that quite sincerely, and then watching you um, have to battle the demons that, that average golfers like us battle on a daily basis, and I loved it. And I think if I could change anything in season um, two's show, it would be that I'd like another comeback to studio, big, long chat about what this was like out there because we did it halfway through the segment and I remember saying like you got no idea lads of how hard this was for me but like we're doing today and di- um, digesting a little bit more it's just such admiration for anyone that loses a sense um, especially the site but yeah it, it, it's really confronting to lose one when you've had it and on that note gentlemen I think we'll bring today's Tenuous Links Golf Podcast to a close thanks very much to Kipper and Philly for sharing their thoughts Be sure to sign up at golfbarons.com to stay in the loop of all that's happening in the Golf Barons stable. And remember to series link Golf Barons Season 2. Now playing on Fox Sports 503 and on demand on KO and Foxtel. Thanks for joining us, Barons. And until next time, remember to always add some swagger to your swing.